Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 73 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hi, good. I just kicked a old dog who will snore real loud out of my <laughs> studio, so now I'm pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Can she learn any new tricks, your old dog? Uh, she, oh yeah, she does <laughs> some interesting stuff the older she gets, but um, <laughs> we are also those crazy people. We put her in a bag because she has a bit of a heart condition, so we're those crazy people that walk around with a dog in a bag on, on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> You're one of those people, right. <laughs> 100%. Uh, we've got uh, some Patreon shout-outs, or shout-out, should I say. Yes, um, this week it's all for Clinton Gardner. Thank you so much and we really appreciate you and all our other patrons. Good on you, Clinton. Cheers, mate. Today's case contains graphic descriptions of violent crimes, drug use, sexual assault and discussions of adoption, all which may be triggering for some listeners. So, as always, we'd encourage everyone to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. G'day, I'm Rodney from Castlemaine, I'm 35, a Gemini and a marine biologist. Uh, I enjoy basketball and squash and I'm a non-smoker and I'm not a big drinker. So I'm just looking for someone to share my happiness and to live a quiet life. I do like to keep things clean but I've got no major hang-ups otherwise. Katoomba is in the heart of New South Wales' Blue Mountains, located around one and a half hours from Sydney. The region is home to the famous Three Sisters, a unique rock formation which towers over the Jamison Valley. In nearby Katoomba itself, there's an array of accommodation, beautiful restaurants and trendy cafes for tourists to enjoy on their visits. There's also quite a vibrant local community. One of those people in the community in 1973 was a young man named Rodney Cameron. 21 at this time, Rodney was married to a woman named Brenda. She had a five-year-old son from a previous relationship who Rodney had taken a shine to. 
Brenda was five years older than Rodney, but they'd found something in each other and had settled down in the Katoomba area for the quiet life. Rodney was working at the Queen Victoria Nursing Home in nearby Wentworth Falls, and his rocky past, which consisted of a handful of petty convictions, looked like it was well behind him. But for Rodney, life wouldn't remain as simple and quiet as he'd hoped. Something, be it internal or external, shifted in him around this time, and things took a turn for the worse. Firstly, Rodney was let go from his job at the nursing home. Secondly, things with Brenda soured, and after a blue one night, she kicked him out of the house. Rodney found himself wandering the streets of Katoomba, with no job and no home to go to. His thoughts strayed to that of a former work colleague, someone who'd shown him kindness during his time at the nursing home. 49-year-old Florence Jackson was a gentle motherly type and had taken Rodney under her wing when he worked at the nursing home. To her, he seemed like a lost soul. He had had a rough trot as a kid and was only just finding his feet when the rug had been pulled out from underneath him. She kept in touch with Rodney after he'd lost his job, the best way she could anyway. Florence was quite frail. She had a condition which caused her to remain quite thin, so travelling to and fro and going out of her way wasn't really an option, much as she might have liked to help others. And so on Saturday the 31st of January 1974, when young Rodney Cameron turned up outside her home in Lurleen Street, Katoomba, Florence was more than happy to invite him in for a cup of tea. Rodney was looking pretty downtrodden. Life had certainly taken a turn for him since losing his job and now being kicked out of the house. Florence needed the outside of her house repainted, so she thought, who better to take it on? She offered Rodney the work, and he gladly accepted. Rodney made his way out front and began slapping a coat of Julux on the weatherboards. Later in the morning, Florence came along, thinking Rodney might have wanted another cuppa. But whatever it was that had shifted in young Rodney not long ago was now about to snap completely. As Florence passed him the cup... Rodney, who was perched up on the ladder, kicked the hot beverage out of her hands. Florence was taken aback and Rodney quickly dropped his paintbrush and forced himself upon her. He dragged Florence inside and into her bedroom. She fought back, but Rodney began to administer a severe beating to Florence. He ripped at her clothes and began to choke her until she was still. He then proceeded to rape Florence, choking her again afterwards before finally strangling her to death with a towel. The small, friendly older woman who had shown him much kindness was now dead in front of him, and Rodney couldn't face her. He took a blanket and covered her body. Rodney then spent the following hour inside Florence's home, stealing a number of items, including her passbook and checkbook and her radio. He then left and walked to the nearby Lura train station, flushed a number of Florence's items down the toilet, before changing out of the overalls he'd been wearing while painting. Staggering down the street in a post-murder daze of sorts, Rodney then visited the local post office. He sent a fake telegram to no one in particular, noting that Florence had been injured. Then he proceeded to tell the post office worker he was Florence's son and he needed some of her money, presumably to look after her. But the post office worker didn't get the greatest of vibes from Rodney. They were suspicious of him and declined to assist. Rodney then proceeded on to a number of other local businesses, one being a caterer where he ordered some food for a party, he paid using Florence's checkbook, and in turn they allowed him to cash a check, which enabled him to finally scam the cash he'd been trying to get from the post office. 
The next store was a greengrocer run by a man named Alvin Clark. Alvin saw Rodney coming a mile off. He looked down on his luck, that's for sure. And when he spotted him trying to pay by cheque, Alvin generously told him not to worry. He'd give him some credit and he could pay it back down the track. Alvin asked a few questions of Rodney about what he'd been up to that day, etc. And Rodney was quite vague about the handyman work he'd been doing and who he'd been doing it for. He gave his real name and address to Alvin and left, attending a further half a dozen stores after this, signing a number of Florence's cheques with his own name. But Rodney's day wasn't finished. Despite it nearing dinner time and him having an abundance of goods on him by now, Rodney wasn't done just yet. He went to a payphone next and called the Queen Victoria Nursing Home, his old place of employment. The matron on duty answered and Rodney asked to speak with Nurse Craig. The matron said she wasn't working and offered to assist with his inquiries. Rodney told her that he was actually Nurse Craig's brother and needed to urgently see her as one of their parents had suddenly fallen ill. He further requested his own sister's address from the matron. Evidently, they were close enough that he knew where she worked but not where she lived. He needed to go and fetch her, he said, so that they could go and tend to their sick parent and subsequently, Nurse Craig would be away for a fortnight or so. Nurse Craig lived in nearby Blackheath and being 1974, long before the regular practising of Privacy Acts, the matron gave out her address to whom she thought was Nurse Craig's brother. Instead, it was a murderous Rodney Cameron who arrived to visit Nurse Craig in the early evening. He forced his way into the house, grilling Nurse Craig about the reasoning behind him being sacked. In a strange turn of emotions and flagrant misread of the situation, Rodney then made sexual advances on Nurse Craig, but whatever his plan this time, it'd be interrupted before he could carry it out. The matron at the nursing home, while willingly giving Nurse Craig's address out, was rightly quite suspicious of the supposed brother and sick parent spiel, neither of which she'd heard anything about from Nurse Craig herself. So she sent two colleagues around to Nurse Craig's for a welfare check off the back of this. These two women arrived just in time to interrupt Rodney, forcing himself upon Nurse Craig, and he promptly took off. This strange encounter and close call from a clearly deranged ex-employee took on a new and darker meaning two days later when Florence Jackson's body was discovered. It didn't take police long to follow Rodney Cameron's petty spree of fraud throughout Katoomba's main street and peg him as the prime suspect in Florence's murder. Aside from all of her checks he had signed using his own name, witnesses also reported seeing a man wearing a brown corduroy jacket talking with Florence outside her home on the day of her murder. Rodney Cameron was in the crosshairs and they had his address as he'd written it down for a number of shopkeepers. But when they visited his home, his wife Brenda told police he wasn't there. They had separated and she hadn't seen him for some time. She had no idea where he was. Police obtained a photo of Rodney and in an Australian first circulated the picture throughout the local print and television media. This hadn't been done in days gone by when a person was purely a suspect and not a wanted fugitive. But Rodney hadn't hung around Katoomba to take in the scenery. Whatever had come over him, he saw fit to travel south in the following days, either by public transport or by thumbing rides. He reached Victoria and six days later was hitchhiking when a kindly young man named Frank Chiliberto pulled up in his Holden Tirana. 
Frank was a bank teller and was on a trip up the coast to Sydney. He was 21, around the same age as Rodney, and this was a bit of a breaking out trip for Frank to spread his wings and find himself. He planned to go for around two weeks before returning home, so he had plenty of time to help out the likes of Rodney. Frank was a fairly reserved guy, generally speaking, but friendly once he'd warmed up. And as they drove, he found himself opening up to the noticeably down-and-out Rodney. On the morning of Wednesday, the 6th of February, Frank turned off the highway they were heading down and drove towards the town of Malacuta, which is a small seaside community to the very east of Victoria. Frank had done some relief work at some bank branches down in Gibbsland, so presumably he knew the area somewhat. Rodney didn't, and unbeknownst to Frank, he wasn't all too happy with some of the personal details he'd been hearing throughout this drive. As the pair went for a walk along the beach in the time after this, the seething resentment that had begun bubbling inside Rodney Cameron boiled over. He grabbed a rock and smashed Frank Chiliberto over the back of the head. Frank fell down into the sand and Rodney proceeded to strangle him before shoving a shirt sleeve and sock down Frank's throat. He then choked Frank to death, rifled through his pockets, taking his wallet, checkbook and car keys before pushing his body off the nearby cliffside. Frank's body fell onto what some reports detailed as a small bridge, others a rocky area by the beachside. Rodney then went down and covered Frank's body with his brown corduroy jacket. He then took off in Frank's Tirana and headed north towards New South Wales. Around 10pm that night, Rodney carelessly crossed double lines and was pulled over by a police officer. But with there being no pictures on driver's licences at this time, he was easily able to assume Frank's identity and continue on his murderous way. Rodney would again come across the police as he slept in the Tirana while parked on the side of the Warringah Expressway in northern Sydney. Again, he was able to move on without any trouble. But it wouldn't stay that way for long, when finally Frank's body was discovered by a local fisherman in Malacuta. At first it took a while for police to identify Frank as he didn't have any ID on him. Police made a few public appeals for information, but pretty quickly, after a Melbourne-based detective named Jim Fry flew up to Katoomba, police from Victoria and New South Wales were able to connect the two murders. There were two standout pieces of evidence. Firstly, the method of the killings with the strangulation and shoving of material down the victim's throats. And secondly, the brown corduroy jacket draped over Frank was the same one that their suspect, Rodney Cameron, had been witnessed wearing in Katoomba. So they knew who their man was, that he was on the loose and dangerous. They also knew he'd been using Frank Chiliberto's car, checkbook and ID to get around. And Rodney wasn't exactly taking great care with covering his tracks, tracks which by this time had gone all the way up the east coast into Queensland. He'd gone up as high as Cairns in Queensland, according to the trail of checks police had been able to follow, and they were soon able to confirm this when they located Frank Chiliberto's Holden Tirana. Rodney had abandoned it west of Cairns and headed south. As he trudged through the tropical heat, Rodney came upon a random house just north of Mackay and approached the owner, a woman named Mary. He asked her for a drink of water and Mary obliged, but Rodney had a different kind of thirst which water couldn't quench. He forced his way inside and demanded money and Mary's car keys. She was undoubtedly terrified as the drifter told her that she'd better do what he'd asked, as he'd killed before. 
Mary had two of her children inside the home, so she would have been very concerned for their safety and in some small part probably relieved when Rodney brushed over their presence and abducted just Mary herself from the home. He forced her into her own car, but Mary's two-year-old daughter ran out too, traumatised at the thought of her mum being taken. Rodney, unmoved by the extra passenger, simply took off with Mary and her daughter in the back, leaving behind Mary's other child, who was actually a baby, in the house. Twenty minutes later, they arrived in the town of Serena, which is around half an hour south of Mackay, where Rodney's southern chops needed more refreshment in the blistering Queensland heat. He stopped for another drink, and Mary and her daughter made a run for it. Rodney didn't pursue them. He had his drink and kept heading south in Mary's car until it broke down. Unable to revive the vehicle, he reverted back to his usual travel method of hitchhiking. Problem was, the police were hot on his trail by now, and roadblocks had sprung up around the broader region. Finding Frank's abandoned vehicle alongside the report of Mary's abduction, police were able to narrow down the area where Rodney Cameron was, and when he passed through one of these roadblocks, there was no talking his way out. Rodney Cameron was arrested on the 21st of February 1974 for a number of fraud-related charges. Then, when interviewed about the murders, he freely confessed to the two murders he had committed, and the most recent abduction and visit to Nurse Craig some weeks earlier. One thing Rodney wouldn't cop to, though, was the sexual assault of Florence Jackson. That was something he had no idea about. All he knew, in his own words, was that he had to kill three. Mary was going to be that third victim, but luckily for her and her kids, she'd escaped. Rodney Cameron hadn't, and he was extradited back to New South Wales to face charges for the murder of Florence Jackson. He was tried and found guilty and received a life sentence for the brutal crime. But life didn't mean the same thing back at this time, evidently, as Rodney ended up serving only 10 years before being released on parole. Thankfully, he was immediately extradited in 1984 back to Victoria, where he then faced charges for the murder of Frank Giliberto. It ended in a similar way, with Rodney receiving a life sentence, and this time, life meant life, never to be released. At last, Rodney Cameron was done. His murderer spree was over. Or so everyone thought. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the late 1970s, some three years into his sentence, Rodney got married Anne Cameron, as she'd be known, knew Rodney as a kid back in Wollongong. She was a nurse and four years older than Rodney. At the same time Rodney was married to Brenda and living in Katoomba, Anne had been married to a man named Les. But as the years went on, things with Les took a downward turn 
and ended with him abruptly showing up at home with a new girlfriend who happened to be pregnant. The understandably distressing marriage breakdown was compounded when Anne's mother fell ill. She became quite vulnerable after this and began searching for her old friend Rodney, who she knew was in jail. Anne found him and decided to write him a Christmas card. To her surprise, Rodney responded and the pair began regularly corresponding. Anne was easily swept up with Rodney's superficial charm and with their old ties, he was able to take advantage of the situation and in the end, the pair married. Into the 80s and there'd be a concerning change in sentencing laws which were designed to keep the worst killers behind bars. Unfortunately, they didn't have that impact. Rodney Cameron, among others, was able to launch an appeal based on these changes, arguing that if a life term now means whole of life, then his sentence must have been for a lesser time. In the subsequent appeal, Rodney demanded a definite release date. A judge said he had shown a great deal of improvement, undertaken study, he had character references, and quite shockingly, he was deemed to have been rehabilitated just six short years into his sentence for the murder of Frank Chiliberto, having only served a total of 16 years for both murder convictions. The judge noted that the sentence had to be given as if he'd received it back in 1974, so effectively a concurrent sentence, which wasn't allowed at the time due to state jurisdictions. Rodney Cameron was ordered to be released after his successful appeal and was sent out into the wide world on parole in March of 1990. Adding to the outrageousness of the decision, which no doubt upset the Chiliberto and Jackson families beyond belief, Rodney wasn't picked up for the attempted abduction of Mary in Queensland either. Both were terrible mistakes that would have deadly consequences. Rodney, alongside his wife Anne, settled down in the regional area of Castlemaine, northwest of Melbourne. The quiet, peaceful life Rodney might have promised Anne only lasted for a couple of months before he landed himself a job at a horse stud. Rodney was tasked with managing the place, which was some 70 kilometres away in Sunbury. The plan was for Rodney to live at the stud and return home on weekends. On Tuesday the 19th of June 1990, Anne drove a final load of Rodney's gear to him in Sunbury. He'd been at the new job for around one week by this stage, but when she arrived, Rodney wasn't there. Some clothes and an overnight bag were missing, but other essentials, soap, shampoo and a spare set of false teeth, were all still there. Anne thought he was possibly out and about, trying to see if he could still fit into society. Still, it was strange to her that someone so fastidious with his personal hygiene would leave behind these items. Rodney was definitely out and about, but not in the way which Anne imagined. Unbeknownst to her, Rodney had recently called into the late-night Lonely Hearts radio program on 3AW called Matchmakers. This was hosted by Yvonne Lawrence. Rodney had listened to the program in jail, and now he was out, he decided to ring through one evening. He said he was seeking a partner to share in his happiness, to live a good and quiet life. He was 35, he said, shaving a few years off reality, a marine biologist, a Gemini, and he liked sports, namely squash and basketball. Rodney got eight or nine responses. One of those, who he was ultimately matched up with, was a woman named Maria Golner. Maria was 44, and she'd emigrated to Australia as a young girl from her native Germany. She had been in a relationship, and she was now single. She was also lonely and vulnerable after her mother's recent death and didn't see a lot of her remaining family. 
Maria was also recently unemployed, having previously worked as a clerk, and she was described as a trusting, decent woman who was looking for her own happiness in life. Unfortunately, she met Rodney Cameron, a man who'd already brutally murdered two people and served only 16 years for it. And on Friday the 22nd of June 1990, Maria found herself heading away for the weekend with this man who she'd matched up with over the radio. They made a first stop in Daniloquin in New South Wales before heading on to Katoomba, an area well known to Rodney and around 12 hours away from where they lived in Victoria. They checked in at the Skyrider Motel, taking room 46. For Maria, everything was going well. She was off on this romantic destination with a seemingly lovely man who wanted the same things as she did, but Rodney had other plans. He paid for the accommodation in advance and ordered some breakfast for the following morning. He queried staff on when the room would be cleaned and requested a do not disturb sign before returning to their room. He and Maria had a quiet drink after this, before Rodney launched his attack. He hit Maria over the back of the head, she collapsed onto the bed, and he began to pummel her face. He then bound Maria's hands behind her back with a necktie, before choking the life out of her, and finally, similar to his other murders, stuffing a handkerchief down her throat. And just to make sure Maria was deceased, Rodney then wrapped a stocking around her head, which blocked her mouth and nose, He then dragged her into the bathroom and emptied a vase of carnations onto her body before covering her face with the bath mat. Before he took off in Maria's own car, Rodney sat down and wrote a letter to his wife, Anne, which read, My dearest Anne, had I not done what had happened, my life would have been destroyed. Love eternally, Rodney. While Rodney headed down south, the staff at the Skyrider were left to find Maria's lifeless and badly beaten body the following morning. The manager had delivered breakfast, as requested, but it was the cleaner who discovered Maria's body. Police didn't have to dig too deep to figure out who was behind this callous murder. Rodney had once again used his own name and address when he had registered at the motel and had carelessly left his fishing licence in the room too. After examining the scene and determining Maria's cause of death, being asphyxiation from a combination of choking on her own blood and strangulation, They launched another manhunt for Rodney Cameron. Within the week, police heard from Anne Cameron, who advised them that Rodney had been in touch. He told her something had happened in Katoomba and indicated he was willing to give himself up. Again, his capture was somewhat unremarkable and without incident, as he calmly gave himself up to arresting officers in Daniloquin, New South Wales. Rodney Cameron was softly spoken and quite polite with officers at first, albeit cold and remorseless when discussing the crime he'd been charged with. His demeanour changed, however, when during the interview police went to take his fingerprints. Rodney was affronted by the suggestion, which wasn't just a suggestion but a right police had in New South Wales. They didn't have this right in Victoria at the time, but in New South Wales they did, and Rodney didn't realise that. Now the calm and meek man was threatening to take the officer's guns and kill them. After taking his prints and some blood samples, Rodney's story changed when it came to Maria's murder. He said it wasn't actually him, but a man named Frederick Molnar who had killed her. They'd met the day before and he had come along for the trip. It was a poor story at best, yet police had to run their due diligence on the matter. No one at the Skyrider Motel had seen anyone else other than Rodney and Maria. Rodney had even provided a photograph of him, a grainy image of a man on a bed sporting tattoos. 
But the police couldn't find him. They searched prison records, electoral rolls and various other databases in existence. Nothing. Frederick Molnar was a ghost, a man who seemingly didn't exist. Rodney Cameron was charged with Maria Golner's murder and he stood trial in October of 1992. Legal history was made during the trial, whereby the prosecution was permitted to use similar fact evidence from the murders of Florence Jackson and Frank Chiliberto in their case. While this is usually not done due to it being prejudicial, rare cases allow it where there's a trademark or standout aspect to the other crimes that aligns with the one the defendant is being tried for. In this case, it was the material shoved down all three victims' throats. It was the first time since 1890 this had been allowed, but it undoubtedly aided greatly in the prosecution's case. The jury found Rodney Cameron guilty, and he was sentenced once again to life, with no possibility of parole. And it's about now we ask the question, was this monster born, created, or some combination of both? Rodney was born in 1952 in the suburb of Kew, Melbourne, His father passed away shortly before his birth and subsequently his mother had to take on a full-time job to make ends meet. This left Rodney mostly in the care of neighbours. Over time, the responsibility of caring for Rodney became too much for his mother and he was fostered out to a family at the age of four. This was the Cameron family. Rodney was later adopted at the age of six by another family with the surname of Mallard and indeed, Rodney did actually go by the surname of Mallard earlier in life, later switching to Cameron. Rodney would tell a slightly different version of his childhood, asserting that he'd watched his mother drop dead while taking a cake out of the oven. He said he was around seven at this time and it was after this that his father fostered both he and his brother out to state care. This version of events was contradicted by those earlier mentioned in children's court records. Whatever the case, from the age of about seven or eight onwards, Rodney grew up in foster care in the Wollongong area of New South Wales. Even at this young age, he was displaying a penchant for grifting, vandalising and conning neighbours out of money and possessions. When another young girl moved out of his foster home around this time, Rodney, clearly impacted by her leaving, tried to strangle another young girl. By the age of ten, Rodney was institutionalised after putting boxes on a train line, presumably trying to derail a passing train. Into his teens, he began getting more violent, one time attempting to strangle an elderly woman on the street and on another occasion throttling a girlfriend he was dating. By the age of 19, Rodney was well into drugs, experimenting with heroin, morphine, mescaline and LSD. He said these drugs, alongside a developing interest in Satanism, really took a hold of him around this time. With an altered state of mind and dabbling in the occult, Rodney believed it was this combination that contributed to his subsequent murderous spree in 1974. Prior to this, he believed he was just troubled. He had tried to take his own life a number of times. On at least four occasions, he had been treated in the Gladesville Hospital. Reports from treating therapists and psychiatrists, however, contradicted Rodney's explanation and self-assessment, noting on one occasion that there was no therapy available that could help him. He didn't want the help anyway. Any time it was offered, he'd push it away. They were left in no doubt what his problem was. He had an antisocial personality disorder, a lack of empathy, remorse and manipulative traits. He was a psychopath. 
Detectives described him as calculated, cunning and potentially the most dangerous man they'd ever met. But perhaps the most damning words spoken about Rodney Cameron came from his adoptive mother. When she was asked in 1971 if she had any suggestions on what to do with him to give him some kind of future, she said, yes, drown him. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. In 1994, two years into his life sentence for the murder of Maria Golner, Rodney Cameron was visited by detectives. Word on the grapevine was that he'd been bragging about another murder he'd committed, that of 79-year-old Sarah McKenzie in 1974. If true, it'd bring Rodney's victim count to four. Sarah had been found dead in her Milsons Point home on Sydney's North Shore on or around the 8th of February 1974, two days after the murder of Frank Chiliberto. Sarah was described as a cranky woman who would go off at people parked outside her house, kids playing outside on the street, anyone who bothered her in the slightest. Two days earlier, on Wednesday the 6th, the day of Frank's murder, Witnesses described seeing a man at Sarah's house walking up her front steps. He was aged in his mid-twenties, five foot eight with blonde hair. And importantly, this was around 5pm, quite late in the day. A further witness report detailed hearing Sarah yell out words to the effect of, it's my house and no one can take it from me, only 10 minutes later. Some 40 minutes later... North Sydney Police received a call from Sarah McKenzie's house, supposedly from Sarah herself, reporting that a man had come into her house and assaulted her. She indicated that she was okay, but just wanted police to come down and look into it. One thing that police noted was the caller sounded calm, not upset about the assault, and there was possibly something off about the voice. Perhaps it wasn't a woman, but a man pretending to be a woman. Whatever suspicions police had, they obviously weren't strong enough to look into things further when they attended Sarah's address an hour later and received no response to a door knock. Two days later on the Friday, a neighbour of Sarah's who had grown concerned decided to call the police, who again visited her home. This time, they took a closer look around the place. Through a skylight on the roof, police observed bloodstains in the hallway. They then entered the premises through an open window at the side of the house and quickly discovered Sarah McKenzie deceased within the home. Her body had been covered with a blanket and a mattock was embedded in her head with the handle sticking up in the air. A significant amount of blood had pooled around her body as detectives began to piece together what had occurred. Sarah had been attacked from behind with a garden fork initially. She'd then been stabbed by her attacker approximately 30 times before being moved into the hall where the attacker then brought the mattock down on her head. Initially, police were baffled by the attack. 
They had actually spoken to Rodney Cameron at the time. If we recall, he had been moved on by a highway patrol officer around this date when he was sleeping in Frank's car in the side of the road in North Sydney. But he hadn't been connected to the murder at the time. A more recent theory had police contemplating notorious serial killer John Wayne Glover as the suspect in Sarah's murder. By this time, his known murders had occurred in the late 80s, but there was speculation brewing that he had had earlier victims. Sarah McKenzie's case remained open, and it wouldn't be until 18 years later that Rodney Cameron shaped up as a prime suspect when a prison inmate came forward to tell police he'd been bragging about committing the murder. Police wired this inmate up and obtained details of these conversations had with Rodney Cameron. As such, they interviewed him about it, and it was said he even made a videotaped confession, but he later recanted this and proceeded to deny any involvement in the crime. In a subsequent interview with police, in which they'd strategically placed a bag containing the murder weapons inside in the interview room, Rodney Cameron said, Is that the Matic? Do you have the knife as well? They weren't details that had been made public, and only the person who'd committed the crime would know them. Still, charges wouldn't stick. The DPP no-billed the circumstantial case due to the contradictory evidence that potentially placed Rodney Cameron in Queensland around the same time as Sarah's murder. But the game of cat and mouse had clearly stirred something within Rodney Cameron. He continued to hint to detectives of other crimes he may or may not have committed. The first he mentioned was the murder of a guy who Rodney claimed he pushed off the Sydney Harbour Bridge. He said that he and this bloke had climbed up there as a dare, but as they walked along at one point, drawing close to the edge, Rodney said he just pushed him and he fell to his death. He didn't go into details, but police looked into it and they were able to find reports to support at least the death of a man who'd fallen from the bridge around the time Rodney had suggested. Police also found an earlier report from the public, which people had called in, noting they'd seen some people climbing on the bridge. So parts of it rang true, but without an admission on the record from Rodney, further details and evidence to support their case, no charges could be laid. Rodney went on to claim he'd murdered two women in separate stabbings in Victoria in the weeks before he killed Maria Golner too. This was a very specific window of time, as he'd only been paroled in March and was apprehended in June of 1990, so that only left a two- to three-month span in which he could have committed these crimes. A quick look through some of Victoria's unsolved cold case murders during this time frame showed a couple of cases that could potentially be attributed to Rodney Cameron. The first is the double murder of 74-year-old May Rosser and 72-year-old Joe Shackleton. The couple were found dead inside of their white VK Holden Commodore vacationer station wagon on the 28th of May 1990. The vehicle was located outside of Hawkesburn Railway Station in South Yarra. After two days earlier, a relative had made a report to police after visiting their home in Hope Street, Brunswick. This relative saw a pool of blood and noticed their car was missing. A large amount of blood was later discovered inside the home and a number of items, including a bedspread and pillows, were also missing. The police's theory was that the couple had been murdered inside their home, then placed in their vehicle, which was later dumped at the Hawkesburn train station. Joe had been stabbed to death and May had been strangled. I couldn't locate if the bedspread had been located or if it was perhaps covering the couple when they were found. Another tragic case occurring during this time frame was that of Shirley Smith. 
Shirley and her husband, Reg, were at their home in Waverley Road, Chadston, having just visited the doctors. This was on the 12th of April, 1990. They had just returned home and noticed the rear glass door to their place was smashed. When Reg walked in, he saw a man standing in the kitchen. The man said in a calm and chilling voice, I've been waiting for you, before knocking Reg unconscious. The man then proceeded to attack Shirley, grabbing her around the neck and punching her in the head and chest. Reg soon came to, however, only to have the attacker threaten him that if he didn't hand over their wallets, he would rape Shirley. So what did Reg do? He took a nine iron out of his nearby golf bag and took a swing at the attacker, who then fled the scene. Sadly, the assailant had injured Shirley, who was an elderly grandmother, so badly that when they made it to the hospital, she later died from a heart attack caused by the injury she'd sustained. The attacker was described by Reg as being around 172 centimetres tall, with medium-length light brown hair, a solid muscular build, and aged between 20 and 25. Whether Rodney Cameron was responsible for these crimes or any others, we may never know. By the time he had made the earlier mentioned confessions, and another two, one being a man whose skull he had bashed in in the 70s, and another woman he had claimed to have strangled in New South Wales, both John Glover and Ivan Malat had been apprehended, and their victim tallies eclipsed his. So there's also the thought that Rodney might just be trying to pad his record to, in his mind, be better than them. Then again, he could be telling the truth. What we know for sure is that Rodney Cameron, the Lonely Hearts killer, is a certified psychopath, and releasing him after the first two murders he was convicted for was nothing short of a monumental error. Our thoughts go out to his victims, both known and unknown, and their surviving family members. I have some brief thoughts. I guess the legal system, I'm always so glad I'm not the one creating these things. You think legislations are so airtight and I'm sure there were so many people involved and, you know, sometimes when changes are made like we saw in this, there's one gap which means someone is granted freedom and then ends up hurting other people. It's just so unfortunate that his legal team or he saw the hole in that and went for it and, you know, unfortunately it was right or he, you know, saw a way out, I guess. It's just so disappointing. Um, And I always wonder in cases like this if there were signs in Rodney's life up until the point he he hurt someone. I know we talked about his rough upbringing or difficult childhood and I'm sure there were things, um, but often there's no way to capture them or hear in detail what this person was thinking and feeling as they grew up, you know, the pathology of people like him. Um, And as always, I'm very sorry for the victims and their family and I think like you're going to say, Sean, I hope he never gets out of jail. Yeah, absolutely. That's all I can think of. I hope he doesn't get out again, even as an old man. Um, you know, to me, this whole story is is sort of similar in some ways to Matthew Harris, who we covered, another yeah. lesser known serial killer. And, you know, he had a tough childhood and, and youth in many respects, but a lot of people do and they, they don't go on yeah. to, to do what Rodney Cameron did. So, yeah, that's uh, that's my thoughts. On to some happier ones, shall we? Yes. Um. What are your? What is yours? I've got sour beers written down yeah. here. I've been getting. I don't know, have I mentioned this one too? Is this a bit like my Brooklyn Nine Nine? 
<laughs> Look, I'm going to say you're allowed to do this one because it's not familiar to me. <laughs> <laughs> I've been into uh, getting into the. I've been into them for a little while, but just trying mm. a few more different. Uh, Sour beers of late, which are going down mm. nicely. I also wanted to give a quick shout out to uh, my neighbour Dave, who lent us his vocal talents in the intro uh, we put together, being the dramatised phone call made to 3AW. So uh, thanks, Davo. <laughs> so good. Um, and mine is a bit of a weird one. Um, as you might see, I've written dentist down. I um, have had awful experiences with the dentist my whole life. I have, um, which a joke my dad loves to roll out is I have a really small mouth, um, which my dad then also always responds with, oh, you wouldn't bloody know it. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's caused quite a lot of dental issues over my life and I've had a lot of teeth pulled out um, years and years ago, you know, awful bloody gores and just terrible, terrible lots of needles in my mouth. I was always so scared of it and it's made me a very bad dental patient. So I didn't go to the dentist for going to say 10 years up until about two years ago. Um, I went and then COVID happened. I couldn't go again. And then I've finally gone and I found a really good dentist. I got four feelings this week. Didn't even cry. Wasn't even scary. Um, I'm getting a couple more because there's a bit of stuff to do because I've left it for a long time. Um, but I'm just not scared. And I'm just so excited and proud of myself that I've actually gone and followed through with this treatment. So that, that's my happy thought. <laughs> good. Good on you. I'm proud of you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> And that's it for us. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link's in the show notes. Over there, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed, get ad-free and early release regular episodes, and a swag of bonus content if you like too. As we mentioned, we've just updated some of the tiers, so people who maybe just want to flick us, you know, $1.50 a month for support can do so. Others can get the ad-free early release main feed episodes for a couple of bucks more, and then there's the bonus content tier as well. Yeah, so we're hoping that flexibility might encourage a few more people to offer some small support that goes such a long way to helping us keep on making episodes. Absolutely. Thanks again, everyone, and we'll catch you all again next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye.